If you have your copies of God's Word, we're going to continue through our walk of Romans, and we're going to pick up in chapter 8. We just got done where Paul talked about his lifelong struggle and battle with sin and how we too will have that same battle in our lives. And we're going to pick up in verse or chapter 8, verses 1 through 4. And some of these verses may sound vaguely familiar to you. Therefore, there is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, weak as as it was through the flesh, God did, sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh as an offering for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh, so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And with that, we will thank the Lord for yet another good Saturday of football. Yes, truly, if green would go. But more than that, let's ask, let's uh, have a word of prayer and ask that the Holy Spirit be our primary teacher this morning and not me. Yes, ushers, take her out. Gracious Heavenly Father, we come before you because you are God. You are the one true God. You are the glory. Your Son, Jesus, is, is you in the flesh. The glory of God. In the likeness of sinful flesh, but not sinful, but fully flesh. Father, thank you for fulfilling the law in us. Because we can't. We need you to do it. Father, I, I confess my sins in front of these people to you. And I ask that you forgive and cleanse me from my unrighteousness. Thank you that my salvation is secure even when I am frail. Father, we pray that your Holy Spirit would would teach us. Forgive us for making the pursuit of you academic. Forgive us for making your textbook, your, your word, nothing more than a textbook of information. Father, may it transform our lives. Renew our minds. Transform our lives. Father, I pray that you would glorify yourself this morning. We ask one thing. Give us Christ. Give us Christ. And I pray this and I ask this in your son's precious and holy name we pray. Amen. If you're awake this morning, say amen. amen. These words ought to sound familiar to you because we studied them last week, but they ought to sound familiar because you've experienced them too. Paul says, oh, wretched man that I am. This is where we ended off last week in Romans chapter 7, a, a chapter that is all about our sin and our failure and our condemnation. Our battle with sin is a lifelong war in which the white flag is never waved in our lives. The Holy Spirit and our old flesh nature wage war against one another. And because of this, there will be times in our lives when we simply fail. 
when we miss the mark, when we are weak, when we choose sinfulness rather than holiness. And the truth of the matter is, we have all been there in our lives. Romans chapter 7 speaks about our ongoing struggle with sin. Romans chapter 8, however, shows us our ongoing victory in the Holy Spirit. Romans chapter 8 is one of the most positive and comforting passages in all of the Word of God. In fact, one Swiss theologian by the name of Frederick Godot pointed out this. He said, Romans 8 begins with no condemnation. It ends with no separation. And in between those two bookmarks, it ultimately tells us that there is no defeat in Jesus Christ. May I offer you and I a suggestion. When you feel guilty and defeated, go to Romans chapter 8. If you struggle with guilt, read Romans 8. If you struggle with sin, read Romans 8. If you're in trials, read Romans 8. If you're struggling with the assurance of your salvation, run to Romans chapter 8. Stephen Cole points out the contrast between Romans 7 and 8 when he wrote this in one of the sermons I read this week. He said this, in Romans Romans chapter 7, I is frequent, the law is prominent, and sin is dominant. In Romans chapter 8, the Holy Spirit is frequent, God's grace is prominent, and His love is dominant. We are going to be spending a few weeks in chapter 8, and it is a welcome respite from chapter 7. And not only chapter 7, but seven chapters of condemnation, sin nature, total depravity, and sin. For the next few weeks, we'll be unpacking the unmovable promises and benefits that our Lord has given us through Jesus Christ. Now, many of us may say, okay, finally we hear about some good news. And I want to be honest with you, I get that. I don't know about you, but I've been in, in, in the depths of seven chapters of the lost condition of man. And, and I, I can feel what Paul is saying when he says, how wretched am I? It's been a long seven chapters of condemnation and sin. But we must remember that while the Bible is a book offering the good news of salvation, it is equally a book that presents the bad news of condemnation. And without a proper understanding of our lostness and our our condemnation, the good news of salvation will mean absolutely nothing. In fact, if we don't know the heights and depths of our sin and our lostness, we will never value salvation. And we see it all in the church today. Salvation is a paperweight. We move around in our lives based on our convenience. We will see it as None needed. So with all of this, let's just jump into the text here this morning, these four verses here. So how do we have victory over sin in our lives when we find ourselves in a place where we say, wretched man that I am, or wretched woman that I am? Paul unpacks the first step by saying, the first thing we need to do is see the big picture. We need to see the big picture. We need, there it is, we see the big picture. There is the potential of living in great defeat in our lives if we focus on only the details that are in front of us. 
If we focus on only the details that are in front of us at any given moment in time, the first thing I want to pull out of this is this. Your failure today is not the rest of your life. Your sin today does not have to be your tomorrow. And it certainly is not your eternity as a child of God. When my kids are broken or they are sad or they are discouraged, whether it be at work or in life, I come alongside of them. And I, by the way, I remind myself of this as well. And I say to them, I want you to hear this. This moment is not your forever. This moment is not your tomorrow. It may be your today, but it is temporary. Live out the season with your eyes on the horizon, not on the brokenness that is in front of you. The first thing we must realize is that when we find ourselves in moments of spiritual failure, when we have just blown it, look up and see the big picture. And the big picture is this. There is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, what in the world does this mean? Because for generations and for many specific areas within the church, this has been absolutely perverted to say something it is not teaching. So what does this mean? Well, let me first tell you what it does not mean. Paul is not saying that a believer's sin is okay. Paul is not saying, hey, let's let's sin so that grace may abound. God forbid. Paul's not saying our sin is okay or that God is fine with our sin or he turns a blind eye to it. Let me make this crystal clear. God is not fine with your chosen, habitual, purposeful sin. He's not good with it. You have been and I have been purchased with a price. And the price, and if I could get an amen on this, the price was high. Amen? Amen. It was the blood of Jesus Christ. Our sin is not fine. God disciplines those whom he loves. In fact, there's a point where he says there is sin that will even lead to death. Hebrews chapter 12, 1 John chapter 5. But like Paul in chapter 7, we should feel some guilt. As Baptists, we ought to go, yes, because we celebrate guilt, do we not? I'm teasing. There should be some guilt when we choose sin. There should be a healthy shame when we choose sin. There should be a a healthy sin and shame that stems from disobeying our loving, loving Savior. And that rather than loving Jesus Christ with all of our heart and loving others as ourselves, rather than loving Jesus who died on, uh, for, for our sins on the cross, rather we have chosen to love the sins that have put Him there. We need to confess those sins. And thank God for 1 John that says if we confess our sins, because this is written to believers, this is not an evangelistic verse, it is a sanctification verse. He says to believers, if you confess your sins, he is just and able to forgive your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Are you thankful for that? The blood is now and it is forever. However... The word condemnation here in the Greek literally means damnation. To push it a little bit further, the punishment that follows judgment, a penalty after judgment. Paul is referring to the final day of judgment. Remember, keep your eyes on the big picture, not on the spilt milk in front of you. Confess that milk. Feel bad for that milk. Get right. By milk, I mean sin, all right? Because we know milk is sin. Now, move on from that, but keep your eyes on the horizon. 
Paul's referring to the final judgment here, eternal damnation, the penalty of rejecting Jesus Christ, the big picture. Now, when you add the words no, which is the Greek word oiden, it means it's written in the, and this will change your life, it's written in the emphatic negative. How many go, yes? Which carries the idea of complete cessation, complete removal. It does not exist. There is absolutely no eternal damnation in the future of a believer. When these are added together, we find a balanced application from this text. The guilt we feel from uh, when we sin is relational, not judicial. Did you grab that? It's relational, it's not judicial. We need to confess that sin and repent of that sin because we want to have a healthy relationship with our, our Savior. But it is not judicial because, because we are sealed until the day of salvation and redemption. I want you to hear this, my friends. When you fail in sin... Remember the big picture. This failure is not your future. Don't live in it forever. Lift your eyes to your heavenly Father and know that when you fail, you stand before Him forever as His child. And there is no future damnation for you. I like how Marcus Rainsfield pulls this out. He says this, The unbeliever has his judgment day before him, but a believer, someone who has placed their faith in the finished work of Christ, uh, even in moments of sin, his judgment day is behind him. So when Satan whispers in your ears, give up. When our adversary says, you're no good. When all that is within you, your flesh and your sin natures, questions whether or not you truly are a Christian, remember, doctrinally speaking, God raised us up with Christ and seated us with Him in the heavenly realms in Jesus Christ. What in the world does this mean? Grab this big picture. The Bible tells us that your future in heaven and your forgiveness of sins is so certain that, that it is so certain that it is, all, that it is like you are already in heaven for millions of years. It's done. It's finished. It's certain we're already seated in the heavenly realms from God's perspective. That's how secure a child of God is even in a moment of wretched sin. You may be a failure today. You may be a sinner today, but you are a child of the living God forever. So in moments of temptation, let us join our supreme example, Jesus Christ, and look at our adversary and say, get behind me, Satan. You're in my way. I got places to go and things to do, and I'm going to confess my sin. I'm going to get up off the ground, and I'm going to become more like Jesus Christ. Praise the Lord for that. Now, don't start whistling. We're not there yet, all right? No whistling. We can say hallelujah, but we have to put it to a church vote for any whistles, okay? All those in favor of allowing people to whistle, say amen. Amen. Those opposed. Okay, you're good to go. All right. (laughs) It's got to fulfill that constitution before we move forward. I joke. Barely, but I joke. Now, since we're still on the subject of victory over daily sin, it's what Roman 8 is talking about. 
Let us touch on another reason we can find victory in our battle that wages within us. For the, law of the whole, for the law of the Spirit, notice the lowercase l there. The law of the Spirit of life in Jesus Christ has set us free from the lowercase l, law of sin and death. It's important to know that within proper homiletics, within ancient um, text, especially within the Word of God, will teach us that just because you see the word law in the Bible does not mean it's referring to the Mosaic law. It doesn't mean that it's necessary, uh, necessarily talking about the moral law of God. Context determines definition. You'll see that even within these four verses, you have some capital L's and you have some lowercase L's. You see, when you see the word law in the Bible, it could be referring to the Mosaic law. It could be referring to ceremonial law. It could be referring to the moral law of God, the Ten Commandments, or a civil governing regulatory law or principle. And they're not all the same. For example, ceremonial law of God was done away with through the life and work of Jesus Christ. None of us brought a lamb to be slaughtered to church today. Can I get a witness? Because Christ fulfilled it. All that that foreshadowed just pointed to Christ. And when he said, it is finished, he meant it's all done. It has come, it has arrived, it's been accomplished. Yet the moral law of God, the Ten Commandments, still have a purpose in our lives today. In fact, nine out of ten were reaffirmed in the New Testament. The only one was not was Sabbath. And, and we'll touch at that when we get to Romans 14 in 2025. Now, the words law here in verse 2 are referring to the regulating principles of sin. The regulating principle. So we're not looking at the moral law. We're not looking at the Mosaic law. We are looking at, at, at regulating principles in our lives. I want you to think something like the law of gravity. The law of gravity certainly does regulate our lives, does it not? If you've ever felt the law of gravity at work in your life, say Amen. How many here are familiar with the law of gravity? We are bound by it, are we not? How many here, as you get older in life, feel the law of gravity regulating you more and more? Anyone at all? There, was, there is a reason I can no longer dunk the basketball. Which, be impressed, means at one point in time, I could dunk the basketball. Now I am air in the air to get the net. How many of you have ever had a conversation with someone after church? And you're talking to that person, you finally go, can we just sit down? Can we sit over here and just, we'll talk here? The principle of gravity is at work in our lives. This is what I want you to have in mind when you see these words. The governing power of sin, the regulating principle of sin that you had before Christ, that pulled you to sin, has been cut at salvation. In fact, it says here that Jesus Christ has set you free from the number four regulating principle of the governing principle of sin in your life. The Holy Spirit and Jesus Christ has cut that regulating principle. The Holy Spirit empowers us and enables us to live a godly life. We have a new governing principle in our lives, and it's called the small L, the law of the spirit of life. And now that you have his presence in your life, 
much like gravity, rather than being pulled down to sin, the law of sin and death, you are, you are pulled to righteousness, the law of the spirit of life. Now, this doesn't mean that we no longer sin, right? This was a governing principle. In fact, we see in Romans chapter 7 that Paul still sins. And being your pastor for, for almost 17, 18 years now, I know that you sin and I sin as well. Can we at least be transparent enough to say we all are sinners? Amen? Can we get there? So it doesn't mean that we don't sin. It just means we've been freed from the authority of it. This is huge. What I want you to grab here is this. Our life should stand in stark contrast to how we used to live our lives before Christ. It doesn't mean that we don't sin anymore, but man, is there ever a difference? Put a little example here. Imagine if today I picked up a basketball under, that's me, with a lower back pain. Yes, it is, so... You don't need to point it out, all right? Imagine if I played basketball today under my current condition, especially under the law of gravity as we know it now. How would my game look? Give me some words. How would my game look? I heard rough from my son. I could beat you right now, brother. All right, no. I can't. Okay, I can't. Well, how else would my game look? Embarrassing. What's that? Lots of jump shots, yes, and turnovers. Anyone else? What's that? Pathetic. Thank you, sister. Push you around the court, I'll tell you that right now. Here's some words I came up with. Slow, painful, 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 jarring, painful, low-scoring game. Lots of heavy breathing and water breaks. Gravity was removed from my life. What if that governing principle was removed and I was no longer bound under the same governing principle of gravity? What would my game look like then? Talk to me. Fantasy land, yes. Here's some words smooth, fast, high, flying, scoring is what I would like to think. Now, let me ask you a question within this example. Could I still miss a shot? Sure I could. Sure I could. Could I bang up against the wall and separate my shoulder again? Anyone? Of course I could. Could I bang into the wall? Yes. But here's the point. My game would look starkly different, would it not? Than it did before? That's what Paul's getting at here. The power of the Holy Spirit breaks the regulating law of sin in our life. And because of this, our life will look vastly different. If you add the Holy Spirit to your life, your life will look very different from before. Let me ask you a question. Does your life and your relationship with sin look exactly like it did before you prayed that prayer? Because if nothing has changed, that prayer has changed nothing. It is the sole reason John wrote in 1 John chapter 1, verse 6, if we say that we have fellowship with him and yet, do not, and yet walk in darkness, we lie and we do not practice the truth. Let me put it in our today's lingo. The one who says they are in Christ but their life does not look vastly different at all is lying to themselves. 
You see, what the law of gravity is to our life physically is what the law of the Spirit is to our life spiritually. Everything changes. You cannot hide it. What I want you to see here is this, and don't miss this. Here it is. Our salvation from sin is inseparably linked from our liberation from it. My friends, in moments of failure, remember that the power of the Holy Spirit empowers you to leave that sin behind. To get up, put your eyes on the horizon because you are under damnation and live out a different life. The sin may be your today, but it is certainly not your forever because the power of the Holy Spirit has given you a new governing principle and that sin is not your Lord anymore. You can be free from it forevermore. In fact, the Holy Spirit is drawing you away from it. Now I want to cast our attention here on the next set of words, and then ultimately pay our attention to two words. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did. God did. What I want you to see here is this is the entire gospel in two words. God did. This is the gospel. The moral law could not provide salvation. The moral law of God did not provide the power to keep salvation because we have a problem. Our old sin nature, i.e. our flesh, is, here it is, is weak, where is it? Weak as it was through the flesh. We didn't have the power to fulfill that. We needed someone to do it for us. Apart from God intervene, we are all condemned. So here it is, grab this, so God did God did it for us. That is the gospel in two words. What we could not do, God did. The moral purity and perfection we cannot gain on our own effort, God can. It is why Jesus said, with man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. And when he says, with this, he's talking about salvation, because the context was, who then can be saved? And Jesus said, well, with, with you, you can't. But with God... He can. Just a quick application here. This verse is not about achieving one of your life's difficult goals. This verse is not about getting that touchdown when you're on the two-yard line. This verse is not about the job you want to get or keep. It is about salvation. What the law could not give us And what we are incapable of accomplishing with the law, God did. These are the two words I want you to see. God did. That is the gospel. We cannot, God can. You see, the moral law of God cannot give us Christ. Only God the Father can give us Christ. In fact, he loved the world so much that he what? He gave. The law couldn't give us Christ. God gave us Christ. And look how he gave him. Sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. In the purple there. There's a great deal of doctrine here. Let me just make it quick and clear. Because clear is kind. In the likeness of sinful flesh. Notice Paul does not say in sinful flesh. Because that would imply that Jesus had sin. And he didn't. Nor did he say in the likeness of flesh. This would imply that Jesus was not fully human. 
But by using these words very carefully, he threads uh, a doctrinal needle here that the rest of the Word of God unpacks. In the likeness of sinful flesh, Paul affirms that Christ took on the limitation of being human, i.e. the word flesh. Yet without any sin himself, i.e. the words likeness of sinful, Christ was fully human, yet he had no sin nature of his own. He went through every aspect of human life. He felt the weight of every temptation. He felt the weight of every temptation and every burden, yet never failed because he was still fully God. He was fully divine. He was tempted in all ways, yet without sin. God sent his son to do what we could not do. To live a life that loved God with all of his heart and loved his neighbor as himself. In fact, there is a friend that will die for his brother. And that's Jesus Christ. Upon doing this to perfection, Christ then died for us as an offering for our sin. Here's what I want you to see. For this truth is too good. This truth is too great. This truth is too radical to fully grasp with passive hearing. Everything that is true of Christ is now true of you. Everything that is true of Christ is now true of you before God the Father. So in that time of failure, when God the Father looks at you, what is true of His Son is true of you. How many are thankful for that? Amen? I'm not defined by my failure. I am defined by my faith. Jesus looked took his perfect righteousness he achieved while in the likeness of sinful flesh, being fully God and fully man, so that upon the infectious call of the Holy Spirit in your life and you place your faith in him, Jesus takes your inability to fulfill the law, he takes your sin, and he gives us his perfect righteousness. And his perfect righteousness was for a reason, and we see it right there, so that the requirement of the law, capital L, which tells us we're talking about the moral law, might be fulfilled. What we couldn't accomplish in the moral law of God, he fulfilled, put it in us through Jesus Christ. Jesus fulfilled the law of God for you. That's one of the reasons why we should now say, oh, how I love your law. Because that law, those Ten Commandments, when you look at them now, you see what Christ has done for you. And you see what he's done for you and, you, and it, it stirs us to honor him. I'll hear this truth in moments of sinful failure. Christian, your life is still spotless in a moment of sin. His righteousness stands in you. It is with this truth that we now understand the words, though your sins be like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. But it doesn't end there. He says, so that. This is the Greek word, hina. Which, which, so that doesn't quite capture as I would like it or should like it. It means in order that, for a purpose, For a reason, Christ fulfilled the law on his own ability and merit, and he took your sin out of your chest, and he shoved in his righteousness for a reason. In order that, hina, for the purpose of. Christ died for us so that, here it is, we don't walk according to the flesh anymore, but according to the Spirit. 
What does walking according to the Spirit mean? These are just a bunch of religious words that turn to white noise after a while. It means that we seek to obey the law of God that He fulfilled for us. We are not saved so that we can live as we please. We are not saved so that we can have fire insurance. We are saved to please God in the way that we live. To bring glory to God. Salvation is inseparably linked to our sanctification. To be in Christ is to pursue Christ. We are stirred and and awakened to love God with all of our heart and love our neighbor as ourselves. So let's close with this. Seeing how the screen is full. So what are we to do with all this context? What are we to do with all of the study and teaching? Here it is. We are to be encouraged. My friend, our battle with sin is a lifelong war that we will wage for the rest of our lives. And when there are moments of sin and Satan whispers defeat in your ears, why even try, Brett? Why even keep going? Remember to lift your head up as a child of God. Dust off your knees, for in those moments of quandary, do not quit. Get up knowing that your failure is not forever. Tell Satan judgment is not your future, it's his. Sin is not your Lord. The Holy Spirit has set you free and Christ is your righteousness and because of this your sin today is not your life tomorrow for our fear of damnation is but zero amen child of God start walking in the spirit because in Christ everything changes here's the thing has your life changed or are you just muddling through the the quicksand of religious culture. W.A. Criswell gives a great illustration. I'm going to close with this. He said, one time, many years ago, there was a father who had a son, and they were in a London town, and they were watching a parade of red-coated British soldiers with their scarlet jackets gets on. For those of you who are not familiar with history, I want you to think the Patriot with Mel Gibson. Don't know why I said that. Red-coated British soldiers. And the father and son were looking through the picture window, watching the parade of those red-coated British soldiers pass by. And the little boy, the son, watching the same parade, exclaimed to his father, Daddy, look at how beautiful their white uniforms are. The father said, Son, they're not white, they're scarlet. They're deep red. No, said the little boy, look, they are white as snow. They're pure white. The father, a little bit concerned, in astonishment, looked closer and saw that the window pane that his son was looking through was red glass. His son wasn't tall enough to look through the clear panes that his father was looking through. You see, when you look at red through red, it creates white. You take a red rose and you look at it through a red glass and you will see a pure virgin white rose. Grab this. That's what God, that's what God does when he looks at us through the blood of Jesus Christ. We who have found refuge in Christ, 
We who have taken our sins and our weaknesses and all the things that hurt us and destroy us. We who have taken them to Jesus. God looks at us through the blood. And when He looks at us through the blood of His Son, the Lamb that takes away the sin of the world, He sees us clean. He sees us pure. He sees us forgiven. Oh, is it even wonder why Revelation 7 says, these are, are those who have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. That's you when you fail. Get up. Take your eyes off that moment. Cast them to the horizon for there is no eternal damnation for those in Christ Jesus. My friends, there is more mercy in Christ than there ever will be sin in you. Go love Him with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your mind. And then take that and love your neighbor as yourself. Because knowing the law of God means nothing if it's not written on our heart. Romans chapter 8. Cast your eyes on the horizon. Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Bless it. You've given your church one primary promise. You will bless your word. So Father, we ask that you would bless it so that it might renew our minds, so that it might change our lives start with me. It's in your precious name we pray. Amen. I love you church. You are dismissed. The lions are at one o'clock.